Welcome to episode number seven of our podcast series, The Paper Trail from the Netherlands Journal of Geosciences. My name is Henk Kombrink, and in my position as the editor-in-chief, I'm asking authors of papers published in our journal about the highlights of their research, but also the driving forces behind performing the study. Just to make research papers more accessible and giving authors a platform to tell a bit more about what goes on behind the scenes of writing scientific papers. In this episode, I'm talking to Anne-Marie Muntendam-Bos. Anne-Marie is a geophysicist and she works at State, Dutch State Supervision of the Mines, SODM. She also holds a position at the Department of Geoscience and Engineering at Delft University of Technology. Anne-Marie has got a long track record of research in induced seismic events. The title of the paper Anne-Marie and her co-authors recently published in our journal is an overview of induced seismicity in the Netherlands. Welcome, Anne-Marie. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> um, just to, to kick off um, this podcast, what, what was really the driving force behind publishing this story in, in, in the journal? Well, the driving force was um, multifaceted. Um, mm -hmm. I should say that, first of all, of course, there's been many publications with overviews of geoseismicities worldwide. Um, and in those, usually the, the famous cases of the Dutch oil and gas events uh, and the famous Groninger case uh, are uh, pointed out. But um, working for the Dutch Safety Authority, um, by law, all, all operators are uh, obligated to inform us if they have had any uh, events in their operations and we are aware of a lot more um, cases of induced seismicity than actually just the oil and gas cases. So uh, we thought it would be very worthwhile to um, basically um, show that to the rest of the world as well and, and share that with the rest of the scientific world because often uh, these other overviews are all based on what has been published and, mm -hmm. and known. Um, so if you don't publish, then uh, usually these cases are uh, gone for cotton. So uh, we felt an obligation to, to share with the general uh, scientific community that these cases are out there and um, to, to cause uh, hopefully the spur an interest into uh, looking further into these cases. Yeah, no, and that is quite obvious from from reading the paper. It's 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 quite a it's an extensive overview of of not only what people mostly may associate with um, induced seismic events, Groningen, but it's there's there's a lot more at stake, even in such a small country. <laughs> yes, indeed. So it, yeah. it's good to, that. Uh, uh, we are much more aware of that, that it's not just oil and gas or yeah. our wastewater injection in, in the United States that are causing these earthquakes, but that really yeah. uh, also with uh, a lot of other cases, you can have them. Exactly. And, and that's what I think uh, I, I would like to kind of partition this podcast a bit in. So so we, we will talk a bit about gas fields and, 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 and what happens associated to those. But we will also touch on uh, geothermal. Um, and I'm also going to ask you for questions about in injection of, of gas, of, of water. Uh, and maybe if we've got time, maybe talk about a bit about salt domes as well. There's uh, there's something related to that as well. Uh, but first, Anne-Marie, um, to, to, to set the scene, can you just very quickly 
um, tell us what uh, induced seismicity exactly is. Sure. Uh, induced seismicity is basically uh, an earthquake that occurs not because there's plate boundaries moving alongside each other, but because we are changing um, the state of the subsurface by doing subsurface operations. So it can be any subsurface operation where you inject or um, extract a, a fluid or a gas from the subsurface. Uh, you change the stress state uh, and you uh, actually can induce an earthquake. Yeah. So yeah, it, it, it is all due to anthropogenic interference in, in the subsurface. Yes, definitely. Yes. Yeah. Um, one of the things I, I'm, I'm not an expert particularly, um, and one of the, the things I, I kind of stumbled on when, when I started reading the paper is the difference between the hypocenter and the epicenter. Could you quickly explain what that is? Yeah, sure. That, that's uh, for us. It's basic seismology, but uh, generally, you can speak. The uh, hypocenter is really the position of the earthquake in within the earth, mm -hmm. so at a certain depth. Whereas the epicenter is just the location at the surface of uh, the earthquake, so just above, projected onto the surface uh, from its depth. So it's it's really a surface expression. Whereas the hypocenter is really also it concludes the third dimension of how deep the earthquake is. I see. So, I guess in 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 um, in the news, etc., people probably often mix these terms, do they? I've got yes, that they impression. Do. Uh, <laughs> if it, even uh, experts from our, our uh, seismological surface sometimes mix them up in in just general public uh, expressions. That's what I think, because often I, I think most often the word epicenter is used also when when talking about at what depth these events yep. occur. Yeah, OK. <laughs> True. Yeah. Well, good to set the scene then. <laughs> um, so in, in one of the most important things that the, the Dutch subsurface and the topsoil is, is obviously sedimentary rocks uh, and unconsolidated sediments. So um, and so you say the it's the combination of a, a shallow hypocenter and a, a, a soft uh, topsoil that that kind of uh, increase the effect of of any seismic events. Can you kind of kind of explain that a bit? Yes, I can. But what actually what these very soft uh, soils do is is that um, they actually amplify the um, wave that comes in. So when an earthquake occurs, it transmits wave through the earth, and these waves. Um, are, are damped by all the layers that they are interfering with. So actually part of the energy is dissipated within the earth. But when they reach these topsoils, um, actually they, these are so weak, they are amplifying the wave again. So uh, they, they increase the wave uh, amplitude and yeah. thus they have a much larger effect on, on what's on the surface. Um, so it, the, the shallow, um, or hypocenters, now I should do it with myself correctly <laughs> as well. So the shallow hypocenters actually mean that there's less damping because the, tra uh, the, the distance that they travels, the waves travel through the earth is much shorter, so they have less damping through that. But the shallow subsurface actually increases the wave again. So the actual effect on the, um, on the buildings on the surface is actually then double relative to a natural earthquake because these 
natural earthquakes occur deeper and they usually occur in regions where there's a hard bedrock and these hard bedrocks actually also damp, uh, damp the uh, yeah. waves so um, the combination is that we feel the earthquakes much more uh, even though they're very sh uh, low magnitudes we feel them much more and they cause much more damage than anyone would generally uh, ex well expect yes. uh, based on the magnitudes i see and and that amplification is that really in the in that interval of the subsurface where the 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 sediments are unconsolidated or is it really the, the first tens of meters what is yeah, kind of it, it it's really the 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 I think it's the shallow 30 meters that really ah, does right. it okay. um, because the, here that's actually where you have the peats and the clays and mm. these are very soft soils and they um, are easily to will easily move along with the wave. Yeah, I see. Um, so in order to have a better understanding of where any events occur, th there is an extensive monitoring network in place. So, so can you can you tell us a bit more how how that monitoring network looks like and what it consists of? Um, well, basically, the monitoring network consists of uh, seismometers and accelerometers that have been uh, installed. Um, there's a basic network that was installed by the KNMI as uh, monitoring natural seismicity in the Netherlands, uh, and then as of 2003, it was. Um, actually found it in the Dutch law that all operators should monitor seismic events and, and subsidence as well. Uh, so, so movements as we call it. Um, and in order to monitor these ground movements, they uh, have to install monitoring network. So um, a lot of the stations that are out there were actually installed by operators. Mm. Um, they commissioned KNMI to install them. And then um, all the uh, monitors were uh, also transferred to KNMI to be included in the national network. Um, so that's the, the general build-up for all the oil and gas uh, that we saw. Um, currently, because uh, the very small local networks are generally too focused for KNMI to include them in their national network, um, or they require uh, like 24-hour monitoring, which is uh, and and real-time uh, response systems, which is something that KNMI cannot offer at the moment. Um, so they uh, are operated by separate consultancies op uh, that the operators hired yeah. um, and installed and those uh, very local systems. So that's also why we have these uh, small local systems in our paper, um, because they, they are reported to us. Uh, so we know they're there and we know that they report uh, on their websites because that's obligated by law as well, but they're not included in the national KNMI network. I see. And and uh, these are, uh, I, I suppose, sort of geophones installed at surface or and are, but are they all kind of also situated in the wells themselves at depth? And now they're not in the actual uh, oil and gas wells, but they okay. have um, most of the network that KNMI has installed is consisting of borehole uh, networks. So they drill a shallow borehole of 200 meters, and then every 50 meters there's a, a seismometer that records the um, the events. Um, and for a lot of stations, especially in Groningen, they now also have an accelerometer on top. But that's something that 
started over the recent years to to also include accelerometers at the top uh, to have the full monitoring system and also measure the actual ground motion uh, that was occurring at the surface. Right, because using a, a I guess a geophone is the other kind of more conventional system. Yeah, the, the geophone used. is a conventional seismometer, uh, yeah, which yeah. is it's just a, uh, yeah measuring the the um, amplitude of the wave. So yeah. it's really way, the way you also always saw on uh, on television the old yes. seismometers with the small uh, exactly brighter going uh, back the and peaks forth. and troughs. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, Excellent. Well, that's that's a bit of a, a set the scene here, and um, let let's talk a bit about about gas fields, um, because obviously we all know that Groningen is the the well the most notorious case, maybe not famous, but rather notorious. <laughs> um, so I, I read in 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 your paper that that in 2013 um, you conclude based on a study um, that the upper limit of, of earthquakes kind of being predicted in in Groningen cannot really be concluded on the basis of a statistical analysis of what happened in the past. And I suppose that that conclusion must have had quite some consequences. Yes, indeed it has. Yeah, yeah. so we, we did a study um, basically um, really separating the data from the Groningen field from all the other data from the small oil and gas fields. And we then studied whether or not we could derive a uh, maximum magnitude from the statistical uh, division of all the magnitudes that we had. Yeah. And um, the analysis basically showed that um, you could not derive that from uh, this uh, distribution. So the frequency magnitude distribution didn't show any uh, conclusive evidence that there was a maximum magnitude presence. Of course, we know from physical um, principles that there should be a maximum magnitude at some point, um, but it was just not drivable from the data that we had. Um, so the conclusion was basically, okay, but we don't know uh, then what is the physical maximum um, that should be studied, and that was studied in the, in the years afterwards, but at that moment we didn't know, and we uh, basically said, okay, but we always assumed that 3.9 was the maximum magnitude, um, if that's not the case, that means that a magnitude 4 or a magnitude 4.5 is just as feasible. Um, and basically, that means that we have a completely different risk profile yeah. uh, in the area than we previously thought. Um, so we really need to, to uh, pay much better attention to this, uh, that maybe we have a, a major risk problem here. Yeah. And 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 I suppose that well, housing of course already happened in 2012. Yeah. Um, but uh, I guess a, a study of this kind must have contributed also to 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 the policy of ultimately phasing out Groningen, as as we see just now, because it's hard uh, it, to it predict kind of what. Yeah, it started the whole thing. So it it yeah. started a major research activity in okay, but if we. Um, it's not that simple then uh, what is the problem? Um, so where can we end up with? What is the actual risk in the in the area? Um, and uh, all these studies uh, were major um, predominantly done by the operator, uh, which is by law uh, his obligation. Yeah. Um, and they made a full 
probabilistic hazard and risk assessment and actually that confirmed that the risk is exceeding what we find acceptable in the Netherlands. Um, and because of the ongoing earthquakes and the fact that the risk is still much higher and even though we're diminishing, uh, the problem with gas production is basically that you keep stressing the field because you yeah. keep taking out the gas each time, even though um, you uh, diminish the production, still you keep stressing the field. So you can have a lot of recurring earthquakes at the same faults um, just yeah. because they rebuild up the stress, which is very similar to natural earthquakes where you keep rebuilding the stress because the boundaries keep shifting alongside each other. Um, and this is basically the same thing happening in Groningen. So each time you're, uh, if you fix your number of, uh, or, or you fix your uh, production, basically your number of earthquakes will increase again. Um, and that conclusion basically re uh, led to the fact that the minister said, okay, well, I no longer find it acceptable that we have this exceeding risk in Groningen yeah. and we should um, stop production altogether. Yeah. No, that that is understandable, definitely. <laughs> um, and of course, Groningen is a, is a is a bit of a special case because of the sheer volume of the field, um, and 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 somehow prior to kind of doing a bit of um, reading and 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 a preparation for this podcast, I thought, well, it, it's it's mostly the bigger fields, the larger fields where where this happens, and the smaller fields are not so much affected. But it doesn't seem to be that black and white, isn't it? No, it's definitely not that black and white. We have uh, various uh, tastes of uh, small fields that are, are being uh, seismically active as well. We have uh, a few fields that are very highly active with uh, even Anerfeyn over 100 events, um, but also Elefeld with uh, up to 60 events. A uh, very famous one was Roswinkel, which actually had up to 35 events, but also included magnitude 3.5 events. So we also have smaller fields. Um, another case is Bergemeer, which only had four events, but all four of them were exceeding magnitude uh, three. Um, so we have small fields that can produce very large earthquakes or relatively large earthquakes for Dutch standards. Um, and we have uh, small fields that produce less large uh, earthquakes, but which only go like Anna Veen has never exceeded 2.6. Uh, but it's been up over 100 earthquakes. So they have an awful lot of very small earthquakes. And um, we also have fields that do nothing. <laughs> so uh, yeah. we have uh, we have all flavors. Yes. <laughs> and and what, what I find found really interesting, just from a subsurface point of view, uh, the Dutch sometimes claim that, well, we've got so many boreholes, we've got so much seismic data, etc. We, we know our subsurface quite well. But actually to explain why some smaller gas fields do experience induced seismicity and some don't, you say you, we, we don't know enough of the subsurface to really explain that, isn't it? It's a combination, I think, of uh, the knowledge of the subsurface, which is always scarce, because even though you have a very large number of wells in the Netherlands, you still have large interpolation problems between them. Um, yeah. So uh, that, there's never enough data in that respect. Uh, also, we have very few really stress measurements, so we know very little of the actual stress field in the in the subsurface, um, which is a vital information on, on whether or not you can get seismicity. Uh, but also, I think that by now we're starting to gain more 
grip on why we can get earthquakes in some fields and why not in other fields, but it's really the physical mechanism. What are the driving parameters that physically are uh, responsible for these earthquakes are only now really starting to, to be, be identified. And uh, the reason why we can identify them now better than in the past is because we know more. We know more about what fault behavior is like. We know more about the famous rate and state friction laws, the slip weakening friction laws. Um, so we can start implementing those. Uh, but we also know more about what fault offset do, does. And that's a major uh, parameter that actually is very distinctive in, in whether or not a fault can be reactivated in uh, due to gas production. So um, we we started a major uh, research program after uh, this whole report was published and Groningen was becoming yeah. a major issue uh, and that is now paying off. So we're now starting to learn more and I think in a couple of years we may be able to, to start explaining these differences really in, in more depth. Um, but at the moment it's, it's still um, much uh, guesswork and it was yeah. much guesswork over the past years yes no it, it, it i find that fascinating to hear because i it, it just paints a uh, quite a different picture from what i had previously assumed that we kind of knew how to explain it and and it was mainly the, the big ones that that experienced it but it's a lot more uh, nuanced than that yes <laughs> definitely yeah um let's talk a bit about um injection about geothermal um so is there is there any difference if you either inject gas or water whether it has or the effect of that on the potential of of generating induced seismic events does the uh, fluid does the fluid as such yeah matter uh the fluid as such matters in the respect that um the uh thermal conductivity is much different. So one of the major risks of the injection is basically the thermal uh, contraction of the rock. So um, you injecting a cold fluid or gas into a hot subsurface and um, like anything that you make cold very quickly, it will start to contract and rock does that as well. And that can uh, cause the stresses in the subsurface and can change your stress field to induce earthquakes. Um, so uh, one of the major differences between gas and, and water is that the conductivity is much different and hence uh, the extent to where the cold front uh, gets to and also uh, stress even goes further than where the cold front is so even beyond the cold front you get strangers in stress um, so that it reaches much different areas than um, for one or the other so gas yeah. warms up much more quicker so it extends less far whereas a fluid uh, especially like water it will warm slowly so it the cold front will extend much further um, than you would have with gas i see yeah and and um, um one of the things or the reason yeah to ask is, is that of course the gas storage has has been important in the netherlands and i think given the growing closure, it is even gaining in importance. Uh, so if you uh, inject gas into a, a reservoir and then take it out and then and next or in the summer you re-inject, that, that kind of cycle, is that does that make the subsurface more susceptible to induce some seismic, seismic events or, or is there not really a relationship there? 
it's a good question. We actually don't know yet. Hmm. So uh, from basic theory, we know that a material can uh, diminish its frictional strength when uh, it's repeatedly loaded and re unloaded and reloaded and unloaded. Um, but actually for, for oil and gas uh, storage, we don't know for sure yet whether the faults will react that way. Uh, the other effect that we know that is out there is this so-called stress shadow effect or the Geyser effect, um, which basically says that if you've seen a certain stress before and you unload it and then reload it to the same stress, actually you will not get back earthquakes mm. and you will only get earthquakes once you load it further than you have previously loaded it. So um, this is something we've seen often. It's actually something we also see happening in the Groningen gas field where we had uh, shut in the uh, production clusters in the Lobosum area. We actually saw that pressure was increasing slightly for a little while and then started to decrease again through production in the rest of the field. Yeah. And actually seismicity started to reoccur when the pr really the pressure was well below the last seen pressure again. So um, we, we really see these effects in the subsurface as well. Um, so it's it's really a question for the gas storages. That's why we have this very intense monitoring for yeah. these, uh, these storages to really uh, get as much data and, and best follow them up uh, yes. as we can. Of course. Um, let, let's talk a bit about geothermal, uh, and uh, of course, because geothermal energy is is hot <laughs> in the Netherlands. <laughs> uh, there, there's about 20 uh, projects are yeah running at the moment. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the importance of the the temperature of the water that is being in reinjected in the reservoir? Because I think that the temperature, as you already alluded to a few minutes ago, it is quite important. Yeah, it's it's actually the most critical factor for geothermal because mm. um, the most systems that we have in the Netherlands are balanced systems. So you inject water in one well and you produce it from another well. They These are usually about 1500 to kilometers apart and, and you try to uh, uh, circulate the water basically and, yes. and slowly cool down your reservoir to a certain point you get your thermal breakthrough. Um, so these temperature uh, is usually very low that they re-inject because they try to get the most of the energy of out. Yeah. Um, so they re-inject at about 30 or 20 degrees centigrade. Um, and that has a huge effect because if the reservoir is 80 degrees, then the diff temperature difference is, is uh, well, 60, 70 degrees. Um, and that's a huge difference in, in temperature that you are imposing. So that really is the fundamental um, cause of possible uh, yeah. seismicity. And then it depends, of course, of how far are your wells away, uh, are your faults away, sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, did you keep enough distance to the faults? And also, how much stress can you induce on these faults? Because we know in the Netherlands that we are uh, quite aseismic. So most of the faults are... Um, much uh, have, a, have a large friction coefficient and, and are uh, very fixed. So they need some stress to be activated. Um, so that then the stress field becomes important again. So how far away yeah. are we from critical? Yeah, but so far, uh, as I understood it, um, 
well, it, especially those geothermal projects that were drilled into sedimentary rocks in, sen in clastic sandstones, they, they haven't really experienced too many issues yet. No, that's true. Um, these have been running now. I think the longest one has been running for 15 years now. Yeah. Um, we haven't actually seen uh, much problems with them. No. Um, one side note that I should make with these is that for a long time, the monitoring network in this area was quite poor. Uh, uh, so we had quite a hard, large uh, detection level. Um, so the threshold was close to two for a very long time. Uh, so magnitudes below two, we just could not see. So we don't know if anything happened below right. that magnitude. Um, but uh, yeah, we have not recorded anything above that magnitude at all. Yeah. Uh, the only thing that was ever recorded was one very small magnitude 0, 0.0 event um, with, uh, from a very dedicated array that was made, positioned there, especially um, to do this type of monitoring to really see if we could detect anything. Um, so that was the only thing that was ever uh, experienced so far. Yeah. Um, and of course, there, there is there's one uh, geothermal project that was um, made or yeah asked to, to stop producing, and that's a California one. Um, and that one produced from uh, Dinantian limestones near, near a, a major fault. So. <laughs> It is, yes, uh, so, so they they are uh, actually injecting into the fractured and karstified uh, dimension limestones, and they are pro produced predominantly from a natural fault zone, uh, the Tegele fault. Yeah, and and um, is there still are people still being looking at this this uh, very specific case with the the view to maybe restart it or or is that not really on the cards anymore you think i'm not sure uh, as far as i know I, i'm not sure whether or not people are still looking at restarting mm. it i know there's still research being done and i yeah. know that um there's plans for turning them into research projects as well, because they are the only one in karstified fractured rock that we have. And, and it's important, especially if we want to go for uh, ultra deep geothermal, when we really want to go for these same kind of rocks, uh, because yeah. they have the high temperatures in the Netherlands, and we want to use it to really get the energy um, instead of just the heat. Then uh, it's important to know what kind of risk we can induce. So this is kind of a pilot project, which was at a shallower depth than uh, they are aiming at for these other projects. Um, but it's in the similar uh, rock formation and with similar circumstances. So it's very important to learn from this project as yes. much as we can, uh, but also from similar projects abroad. Um, yeah. So that there's a number of research projects ongoing to to really uh, look in that in more depth. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to use these as as a research um, project, indeed, because it's a <laughs> it's a fairly unique <laughs> environment or kind of subsurface setting. These wells penetrated for sure. <laughs> yes, yes yeah. definitely. But I don't think the the pepper farmers will have uh, a lot uh, of benefit from no, it. No, no, no. That's as far as they're using heat or things yes, like that. So that's they for will sure. still. Be uh, wishing that they would just be back in full operation. But. Of course, no, yeah. <laughs> um, Anna Marie, that, that there's 
a lot more questions I could ask, but uh, we have been talking for more than half an hour already. So I, I think it's it's probably good to draw it to a close. Um, so Anne-Marie, I want to thank you for your taking out your time today to talk about uh, the paper you published. I think it's been really interesting. Um, so thanks a lot. You're welcome. Um, and this was episode number seven of the paper trail. My name is Henk Kombrink, and I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation with Anna-Marie Munt-Nambos. See you next time.